0: On the fifth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me five golden rings. Once upon a time, there was a king with one daughter. The king and his ministers had decided that when the princess was old enough, she would be married to the son of the prime minister. When the princess had become a young woman, and had begun to talk of marriage and such things, the king turned to her and said, My daughter, I have already selected you a husband. You shall marry the son of my prime minister but the princess said that she did not wish to marry the son of the Prime Minister. She had fallen in love with the palace gardener. The king did not know what to do. He didn't want to force his daughter into a marriage against her will, but at the same time all of his plans had revolved around the Prime Minister's son becoming his son-in-law. He called on all of his chief counselors to come and advise him on the matter. The councillors sat and discussed for a long time, before one of them suggested that both young men should be set a task. Whoever could achieve it first would win the hand of the princess. All agreed that this indeed seemed like a fair way to settle the matter. But the king asked, what if the gardener wins? Ah, said his ministers and counsellors, but we have thought of that. The prime minister's father is rich and gives his son a great allowance. He also has a fine horse, while the gardener, he only has an old nag. The task we set them shall be this. Both men must travel to a far off location, leaving upon the same day. Whoever manages to complete his journey and return first shall win the hand of the princess. The king agreed to this plan, and he felt certain that in such a race there was no way that the gardener could beat the prime minister's son. The night before the race was to begin, though, the princess went to the gardener secretly. She told him she knew her father had rigged the odds against him, but she gave him a handful of jewels and told him to use them as he would and that she was certain, as their love was true, he would come back and claim her hand. The next day, the gardener and the Prime Minister's son assembled in the courtyard. The Prime Minister's son was dressed out in his finest clothing. His saddlebags were full of money given to him by his father, and his stallion pawed at the ground, eager to be off. The gardener, in comparison, looked very shabby. He wore his working clothes, worn at the knees, boots stained with mud, and his faithful mule beside him looked half asleep. The trumpet was blown and the race began. The Prime Minister's son took off at a gallop. The gardener on his mule set off at a plodding pace. After travelling many miles, the Prime Minister's son came to a fork in the road. Sitting there was an old woman. As he came close, she threw her arms up and called out to him. I am an old beggar woman. Will you show me a little charity? But the Prime Minister's son, although his saddlebags were heavy with gold, did not stop and barely even spared the beggar woman a glance. Some time later, the gardener, on his mule, came to the same crossroads. The old beggar woman was still sitting there. As he came close, she threw up her arms and said, I am an old beggar woman. Will you show me some charity? The gardener stopped his mule and got down to speak with the beggar woman. He reached for the jewels the princess had given him. He took out the jewels and handed them to her. My true love gave these to me and bade me do with them what I will. Though I have a great journey ahead of me, I think that you are in more need of them than I will be, he said as he pressed the jewels into her old gnarled hands. Thank you, young sir, said the beggar woman. As you have shown me kindness, I shall see to it that you have good fortune. Listen to me well and mark what I tell you. In a few miles you will enter a new country. The king of this land is very sick. No physician has been able to heal him, It is declared that anyone who can heal the king may ask for any reward they wish. I shall tell you how to heal the king, and I shall tell you what you should ask for your reward. The gardener listened to what the old woman said. He listened, and though he could not believe it, he knew her words were true. When she had told him all that he must do, he nodded his head in thanks to her, got back on his mule, and rode off. After a few miles he did indeed cross into the new land. He saw signs and posters declaring that anyone who could heal the king could ask for anything in the world as their reward. The Prime Minister's son had also crossed into this land. The first thing he had done was go to the finest inn he could find, rent himself a room, and then fall asleep. But the gardener's son did not sleep that night, for the old woman had told him that if he went to the well under moonlight, he would find three dogs, one black, one white, and one red. And that is just what he did. When he went to the well he found three dogs sitting there, one black, one white and one red. He went to each dog and asked if they could spare him a tooth. Each dog, black, white and red, gave him one of their teeth. Then the gardener's son took up a stone and began to smash and grind each of the teeth into dust. He pocketed the dust each in a separate pocket so they would not mix and then went to the palace. He knocked on the door. He called out that he had come from a faraway land and that he alone, in all the kingdom, knew how to cure the king. The palace attendants had seen many people come claiming that they knew how to cure the king, but none had been able to achieve it. They looked out and saw the gardener in his scruffy, worn clothes and they could hardly believe that he knew the secret. But they were desperate, so they invited him in and asked him what his cure was. The gardener told them that he would need a great cauldron a cauldron large enough to fit a man within it, and he would need a great deal of wood, as much wood as three oxen could carry. And when all was brought to him, he was to be left alone with the king, and no one was to disturb them until he opened the door. The king's attendants went and fetched a large cauldron, fetched as much wood as three oxen could carry. They brought them to the gardener, and then had the king carried down on his sickbed. The king was indeed very ill but the gardener trusted in what the old woman had told him, so he shooed all the attendants out of the room and locked the door. He filled the great cauldron full of water, set it upon the pile of wood and lit it. He watched and waited until the water was boiling away, and then he picked up the old king, who weighed nothing more than a feather, and tossed him into the boiling water the king screamed and thrashed and yelled out that he was being boiled alive but he was so weak that even though he cried with all his might his voice was little more than a whisper the gardener watched and waited the old woman had told him to wait until the flesh was boiled off the king's bones and that was what he did When the flesh was parted from the bones, the gardener carefully fished out each one of the bones and laid it out. He laid them out from the round bowl of the skull all the way down to the tiny bones of the feet, being careful to arrange each one in its proper place. He then reached into his pocket and took the dust from the tooth of the red dog. He sprinkled it over the bones, and as he sprinkled it over the bones, new muscles and sinews seemed to grow. They wrapped themselves around the bones, pulling them tight and together. Within the ribs he saw heart and lungs blossom like flowers, and intestines begin to grow like vines. He reached into his pocket and took the dust from the tooth of the black dog. He sprinkled this over the body of the king, and watched a skin began to grow. Skin and hair grew and wrapped up the muscles and organs of the king, wrapping them up as prettily as if they were a present. When this was finished, the gardener reached into his last pocket and took out the dust from the tooth of the white dog. He sprinkled this over the body of the king and when it was done, the king jumped up, alive and healthier than he had ever been. The gardener went, unlocked the doors and threw them open. He called out to the attendants. See, the king is cured. And all were amazed, for the king was not only cured, but his age had been turned back at least forty, if not fifty years. Celebrations were held all through the kingdom, and the king turned to the gardener and said, What is it you wish for your reward? Anything that is in my power to give you, I shall grant. Do you wish for the hand of my daughter? For half my kingdom? For your weight in gold? Ask, and it is yours. The gardener, though, had been told by the old woman what it was he was to ask for. And so he said to the king, I do not wish for the hand of your daughter, for I am already in love with another. I do not wish for half your kingdom, for though it is a lovely kingdom, I wish to return to my home. And as for my weight in gold, how should I possibly carry it? No, what I ask you for instead is a bronze ring, a bronze ring that sits in a wooden box in your treasury. That is all I ask for, and that is all I will take. The king called for his attendants to go to the treasury to search and see if there was a wooden box which contained a bronze ring. The attendants returned, covered in dust and cobwebs, but carrying a wooden box which held only a single bronze ring. Are you sure this is all you wish to ask for? said the king. Yes, said the gardener. This is all I will ask for and all I will take. And so he took the bronze ring and placed it on his finger and walked out of the king's palace. He walked to the sea, and once there he whispered to the ring, Give me a ship, a ship whose sails are made of silk, whose decks are trimmed with gold. Let it have a full crew, who know their business, and who all are healthy and loyal. Fill the hold with spices and rubies, and let me be the captain of this ship. The gardener looked about him. Everything else that the old woman had told him had come true. Surely this must be true as well, that this simple bronze ring, would grant its wearer anything they desired. There on the horizon he saw it, a ship whose decks were trimmed with gold, whose sails were of silk. The ship sailed up, and the crew called to him as their captain. The gardener's son boarded the magnificent ship and sailed towards his destination. It took many weeks for the gardener to arrive by sea, and once he had arrived in the city that was his destination, he asked if his rival, the Prime Minister's son, had been seen in that place. The Prime Minister's son had indeed arrived, but he had travelled in such lavish style that he had spent all of his money before he had even reached there. He had had to sell his horse and travel the rest of the way on foot. His fine clothes were no more, and he had been reduced to taking a job as a servant, the lowliest servant in a great house, whose job it was to take all the rubbish from the house to the edge of the city. The gardener was now dressed in splendour and had grown himself a mighty beard, as suited a young captain of a fine ship. The Prime Minister's son did not recognize him, and this was just as the gardener had hoped. He found the Prime Minister's son and offered him new employment as one of his servants. He would have a fine new coat, and his job would be to see that one of the young captain's ships made its way safely into its home harbor. The Prime Minister's son almost cried with joy. Where you wish your ship to go is my home, he cried, and fell to his knees before the young captain, kissing his hands and embracing him. Thank you, thank you. I never thought I would be able to get the money together to travel home. Oh, thank you, thank you. The young captain, really the gardener, told the Prime Minister's son to meet him the next day at the docks. He then went down to his fine ship and whispered to his ring to bring him another boat, one not quite as fine as the first, and to bring a suit of livery, and on the inside of one pocket was to be embroidered a rose surrounded by a bronze ring. The ring brought the gardener, who was now the young captain, a second ship, not quite as fine as his first, and a suit of livery, just as he had asked for. When the Prime Minister's son arrived the next day, he was given the suit of livery to wear, put on the ship, and the young captain watched as he sailed away. When he was out of sight over the horizon, the young captain himself began to set sail. Back at the palace, the princess had been watching and waiting. She knew her true love, the gardener, would come and claim her hand and when she heard that one of the suitors had returned she rushed down to the palace courtyard certain that it must be the gardener but how her heart fell when she saw standing there the Prime Minister's son. The King and the Prime Minister, though, were overjoyed. They called for arrangements for the wedding to be made at once and for a great banquet to be held in honour of the engaged couple. Not long after There were calls that a fine ship was seen coming towards the harbour, a ship whose decks were trimmed with gold, a ship whose sails it looked like were made of silk. The captain of the ship was a fine young man, with a fine beard on his face. The king was in such high spirits that he invited the captain of this magnificent ship to come to the banquet. The captain came, carrying in his arms a chest full of rubies to offer as a gift. He asked the king in whose honour was the banquet being held. Why? My future son-in-law, said the king, presenting the prime minister's son to the captain. There were two suitors for my daughter's hand, and a race held between them as to which would be the one to wet her. This young man here was the first to return, free and unencumbered. Free and unencumbered, cried the young captain. Oh, I don't think so. This is one of my servants. The prime minister's son tried to deny it. The captain called that they should look at the inside of his pocket. There they would find embroidered his seal a rose within a ring of brass. They searched the coat of the Prime Minister's son and indeed, just as the young captain had said, they found embroidered onto the inside of one of his pockets a rose surrounded by a ring of brass. So it is true, cried the king. You are the servant of this young captain. The Prime Minister's son could no longer deny it. He looked to the ground, his face turning red. At that moment, the princess herself emerged. She recognised her true love, behind his beard and behind his new fine clothes. She recognised her gardener, for she would have known him anywhere. She ran to his arms, weeping and crying out. Oh, my love, you have arrived too late. The Prime Minister's son, he came here before you. The king was moved by the scene, and greatly impressed by the gift of rubies, which the gardener, now the young captain, had brought. He stroked his beard and said, "Well." It would appear that the Prime Minister's son is actually the servant of the Captain, uh, I mean, the the Gardener. So, in a way, I suppose you could look at it that he was his proxy when he arrived first, and that, indeed, all things considered, and taking one thing with another, that the, the Captain, I mean, the Gardener, has, in fact, triumphed. Everyone agreed, except possibly the Prime Minister's son, but he chose to keep his own counsel. The gardener and the princess were wed, and the story might have ended there, had there not, living in that kingdom, at the very edge, been a magician. A magician who had devoted himself to the dark arts and to the seeking of power. He had heard the story of how the king of the neighbouring kingdom had been miraculously healed, and that the one who had brought in the cure had asked in return only a simple bronze ring. He had also heard how the gardener had undergone such a strange turn of fortune. He put the two together, and with his knowledge of magic, and so came to the conclusion that not only was the gardener the one who had healed the king, but that the brass ring he had asked for had magical powers. And once he had come to this conclusion, he could not sleep but for wanting of the ring. He took down his books of spells and potions, and he began to work a magic. He created a tree, but a tree for whom time would move differently. In the time it took for the minute hand of a clock to make one full circle, this tree would go from the buds of spring, to the leaves of summer, to the fruits of autumn, to losing its leaves, and then all the way round again back to the buds of spring. And this cycle would repeat over and over and over again. The magician then loaded this tree up into a cart and went towards the palace. The gardener, now the young captain, Having all that his heart could desire, no longer wore the magical brass ring. He had taken it off one night, placed it on his wife's vanity, and not thought of it again. By the time the magician arrived at the palace, he was out at sea. On his ship were decks trimmed with gold and sails of silk. The princess, though, was in the palace, and when she saw the magnificent tree, she knew that it would make an excellent gift for her new husband. She asked the magician what was his price. All I ask, and all I will take. Is a bronze ring. The princess thought this an odd request, but felt it was one she could easily fulfill. She went upstairs to her vanity to search among her jewels. Surely she must have a bronze ring. She found one sitting upon her vanity, and not knowing the importance of it, took it down and gave it to the magician. Once it was in the magician's grasp, he began to command it. May the silken sails of the gardener's boat be ripped to shreds. May his gold gilded decks be turned to rotten planks. May all his crew become weakened with seasickness, and may his hole be filled with nothing but a thousand black cats. And so it came about. The gardener, the young captain, was standing upon his glorious ship, when suddenly all the crew members ran to the side and began to heave and vomit out into the sea. He looked up and saw the silken sails being rent asunder by unseen hands. Beneath his feet the timbers of the decks became nothing more than rotten planks, and from beneath them within the hole he heard the yowling of a thousand black cats. "'Oh no!' He cried. How could this happen but that someone has stolen my magic bronze ring? And if someone has stolen my magic bronze ring, they surely must have stolen my beautiful, lovely princess as well. A fierce wind picked up. The gardener ran to the helm of the ship. All the crew were too sick to be of any use. He battled against the storm, desperately trying to keep the ship afloat, and all the while the cats yelled and whined and screamed and hissed. The ship was utterly turned about by the storm, but the gardener managed to guide it to an island, but an island on which before no human foot had ever stepped. For this was the Island of the Mice, where the Queen of the Mice sat upon her tiny throne and ruled over all rodents. The gardener wandered about the island, marvelling at the tiny cities and tiny towns, and the inhabitants of the Island of the Mice came out from their tiny towns and tiny cities and marvelled at this human walking among them but the gardener was not the only one to leave the ship. One of the thousand black cats, one who was slightly smaller than the other, had managed to squeeze itself through a crack in the rotten timbers. Having been buffeted and tossed by the storm, the cat was hardly in a charitable mood, and so when it saw the inhabitants of the Island of the Mice, all it could think about was breakfast, lunch and dinner. The Queen of the Mice, when the news reached her that there was a cat terrifying her subjects, sent an emissary to the gardener, for as the two had arrived at the same time, it was assumed that the cat must be his pet. Please, said the emissary of the mice. Call off your hellish beast. The gardener, though, having seen how well organised the kingdom of the mice was, had an idea. I will hold him for a time, he said, but he is only one of a thousand, and unless you can bring me back my magical bronze ring, I shall unleash each and every one of them upon your kingdom. The emissaries scurried back to the queen. The human says that unless we find his magic bronze ring, he will unleash a thousand such beasts upon us. Well, then, it must be done," said the queen of the mice. We have eyes and whiskers in every corner of the world. Surely it will not take us long to discover where this ring is. And so word was sent out, and in every corner of the world, mice began to search for the bronze ring. They scampered and scurried, and then one heard from a gerbil. Who had heard from a hamster who had heard from a rat who had heard from a vole that there was a magician who had come into the possession of a brass ring which would grant him anything his heart desired that must be the one said the queen of the mice but how are we to get it which of my brave knights shall venture forth and retrieve the ring and save us from the thousand black cats now the knights of the queen of the mice were brave but they were not foolish cats were bad but magicians were even worse Then three little voices spoke up. We will go. The voices were those of three sisters, one who had been blinded in battle, one who had been made lame by a trap, and one whose ears had been cropped in the fight with a cat. In all the world you will not find three mice more brave than we, and though we be blind, lame, and cropped of ears, we shall save our people. And so the three sister mice each boarded a sparrow and flew off to the Tower of the Magician. They flew around the tower on their feathered mounts, before leaping off onto the roof and scurrying inside. They were careful to keep out of sight for the magician, for they knew all too well the terrible fate that befell any mouse caught by those of his craft. They saw that the magician kept the ring close by him, and that when he slept he placed the bronze ring in his mouth, so that it could not be stolen off his finger while he slept. But the three sister mice were clever indeed. While the magician slept, they went into the kitchen and dipped their tails in oil and then in pepper they then crept back to the room where the magician was asleep they climbed up onto the head of the bed and began to whirl their tails in the air the pepper flew from their tails the magician breathed it in and made a huge sneeze as he sneezed the bronze ring shot out of his mouth it was caught nimbly by the mouse with the cropped ears before it could land on the stone floor and waken the magician With the ring securely in their paws, the three sister mice climbed back up onto the roof, called for their feathered mounts, and flew back to the island of the mice. They presented the ring to their queen, and she in turn presented the ring to the gardener. The gardener then spoke to the bronze ring. May all my crew be well again. May my ship be returned to the glorious vessel it was, and once I am gone, never again may human foot or feline paw tread upon the island of the mice. The mice were so pleased by this that they almost forgave the gardener for having threatened their kingdom. The gardener sailed back to his beloved princess and once there he took the bronze ring off his finger. He put it in a small, unassuming wooden box. He then went to the king's treasury and in the dustiest, farthest corner he could find he placed the box and there it rested until everyone had forgotten about it. And then it rested some more and the bronze ring in his wooden box rested and waited until someone listened to an old woman when she told them that the only reward they should ask for from the palace was a bronze ring that was to be found in a wooden box in the dustiest corner of the treasury